There are many things that compete for our focus, for our attention these days. And uh, God tells us that when our focus is on him, it keeps the rest of our life in balance. It keeps things in perspective. It keeps us going in the right direction. I'm excited today to talk to you on the topic uh, or to the listeners, to anyone who may be tired of waiting. I recognize that we're basically four months now into this new season of church where we're not able to meet physically, but we meet uh, in the virtual realm and uh, we still have a connection and we still have, uh, church hasn't closed, but our building is not open at the current time. Our campus is not open. And there are people who pray that prayer that uh, we had uh, two occurrences of this phrase last week in the psalm we read. How long, O Lord, how long? And there are people who are tired of waiting. They're tired of waiting for this virus crisis to be over. There are some people who are tired of waiting to get a test or to hear the results of the test. I got my test back. I tested negative, grateful to God for that. Uh, Sherry, who got tested the same time I, I did, uh, still has not heard, so we're waiting for that. But we're tired of waiting for us to be able to return as well, to experience uh, church life together in person, to worship the Lord together, to open God's word together, to greet one another with warmth and with love and with care. And throughout the seasons of life of God's people throughout human history and throughout the pages of scripture, we see people who are also tired of waiting, tired of wondering, tired of the questions that come to them, people who are asking, how long, O Lord, how long? Psalm 74, the people cried out, we do not see any signs of God's presence. There are no longer any prophets. In other words, there's no longer anyone who speaks for God. And we have no one to tell us how long this will last. Well, I'm here to tell you, I don't know how long this will last. Our government authorities don't know and even disagree with each other how long this will last. Our medical authorities have a lot better information, but they don't know how long this will last. We know that this is very serious. It was probably about a month ago that Dr. Fauci said, if we don't flatten this curve, we're going to have upwards of 100,000 cases uh, a week, and um, we haven't flattened that curve. I think the number was 77,000, and the number keeps rising. Number of cases, the number of hospitalizations. In some states, the number of uh, uh, ICU rooms or uh, ventilators is uh, getting pushed to the limit. How long, Lord, how long? And uh, I confess to seasons of discouragement uh, in my own life as I kind of navigate this, uh, along with uh, the coronavirus presence in our family, uh, which most of us are clear now, except for uh, Sherry, who doesn't have any symptoms, but just hasn't gotten her results. But we met as a staff, a senior staff this past week, and I was feeling pretty low. Pastor Brandon brought up a, pas a passage of scripture to encourage us to think about, reflect on, and I wanted to kind of just grab onto it because it spoke beautifully to me. And it's from 1 Thessalonians 5, and it's a season that is different from our season, but strangely similar. Paul writes, now brothers and sisters, about times 
and dates, we do not need to write to you. I thought that was kind of humorous because in our era, we want to know times and dates. How long is this going to last? How soon is a virus going to come? How, uh, how quickly can we get past this first wave? Will there be a second wave and what time will it hit? About times and dates, we don't need to write to you and we don't really have access to that information. But we know this, verse 2, we, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It'll come quicker than you expect. We can relate to this at Bethany because we've been, had our property broken into six times in the past uh, three or four months, which is very frustrating. But you know that kind of sense of, of shock and horror when you realize that uh, there's been a, a, a theft and you're never quite prepared for it. Paul says, though, in verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. I want to say that again because you may feel in darkness. I've had seasons when I felt uh, a darkness kind of surrounding me. When Sir Winston Churchill used to call uh, the depression that he would struggle with from time to time the black dog that would come to kind of haunt him. But you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light. You are children of the day. And we do not belong to the night, and we do not belong to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, clear-headed, clear-minded, clear-thinking, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 6 about how you and I are to put on one another the armor of God. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. He died for us, and why? He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, aware or not, he died for us so that we may live forever together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. What's Paul saying? I think he's saying at least three things in this passage, three things that speak to me from Paul's words uh, in the Word of God. He says, first of all, verses 1 and 2, that we are not immune to the darkness. It's all around us. You and I, even though we're followers of Jesus Christ, we are not immune to the darkness. We live in a world of darkness. There's a passage in the Psalm, Psalm 74, verse 20, where it says that, there are dark places in the land, and they are full of the haunts of evil, of violence, of crime. We live in a dangerous world. We're not immune to that darkness. Even followers of Jesus experience that. Jesus himself experienced darkness. The people of God experience darkness. You think back in the times of the lives of the men and women who are called out to us in the pages of God's holy word and you think of the darkness that Moses went through at times, the lack of clarity, the frustration with the challenge God had given him and the 
stubbornness of the people that he was leading and his own impatience to see God kind of quickly get on with what he said he was going to do. You think of the darkness of David sometimes hiding in caves, literally, because of the oppression of people who should have loved him, the king that he served so nobly, the sum that he had raised and cared for. You think of the darkness of some of the prophets, of Ezekiel and what he went through, and, and, and uh, Elijah and his discouragement after battling the prophets of Baal, after running to escape the political leaders out for his head, 40 days running off into the desert, hiding himself also in a cave. You think of the discouragement of Jeremiah, who year after year faithfully served the Lord and yet didn't really see a lot of results from his efforts. So many seasons of darkness. You think of the Apostle Paul who writes letters from prison. We actually believe we know where that prison is in Rome and almost the context from which he's writing where he, he was lowered down through a hole in the floor into a kind of a cave-like structure uh, and he was kept bound to other uh, guards, part of uh, Caesar's elite uh, guard and then there's a shelf on that in that dark and dank cave where it seems like he would lean as he either wrote with his own hand, or more likely in many of his letters, he has uh, a partner in ministry who's with him who takes the dictation and inscribes that for him. But he's there in prison, in captivity, wondering about the light. Or we think of the final book of uh, God's word, uh, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we think of John being set into exile in fact, this idea of exile is a powerful one. Uh, several writers in the last just month or so have published uh, books, a couple of Christian thinkers. Tom Wright is one. Uh, John Lennox is another who've written books about the coronavirus and asking if God is trying to say something to you or to me through this season. Tom Wright in particular says that we should open the Bible and turn to these passages of Scripture that speak to us about the season of exile when Israel was no longer kind of just that comfortable in their homes but was taken and forced into a, a, a new place, a new space, a, a new location. Now you and I in most cases aren't taken from our homes but we are stuck in our homes often. We feel isolated sometimes in our homes. We feel like the walls may be closing in around us a little bit in our homes. We're not immune to darkness. And we get tired, we get frustrated, we wonder how soon can we meet. And as soon as it seems like, well, uh, churches can open up uh, meeting certain conditions, then some of those conditions change, some of those become steeper. And uh, to the effect that people are trying to keep us healthy, keep the disease from spreading even further, because it can uh, go uh, very quickly from person to person when we're in close proximity and we're in close proximity within uh, an indoors environment, and when we do that over an extended period of time, especially we're vulnerable. We need to continue disinfecting. We need to continue wearing masks. We need to continue the six-foot social distancing exercises that our health authorities encourage us to do. But we get discouraged. We feel alone. We feel isolated. 
we wonder if anybody's there. We wonder if anybody's there, and we wonder if anybody's there. Vertically with God, and horizontally sometimes with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Isaiah the prophet knew darkness as well. In fact, in Isaiah 9, he opens saying that there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Are you in distress in this season? Are you growing weary? Are you growing tired? Do you feel like I kind of can't wait for a new situation to come? I feel like my growth maybe even is being stifled. There will be no more gloom, the prophet announces with expectation. No more gloom for those who are in distress. We're going to come back to chapter 9 of uh, Isaiah in a few moments. But for now, let's just say this. We are not immune to the darkness. It is all around us. But secondly, we can say this. Paul tells us that we do not belong to the darkness. We do not belong to the darkness. In fact, we are called to put on the habits of the light. We don't belong to the darkness, verses 4, 5, and 6. So we're called to put on the habits of the light, verses 8, 9, and 11. What did he say? You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Rather, you are all children of the light. You are children of the day, and we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, sometimes we walk through the darkness. Sometimes we're awake in the night. And this is true for God's people from David to Paul to Jesus. But we don't belong to the darkness. And so there are habits that we're invited to take on, to put on, as it were, to begin to exercise, to begin to live out. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul writes to another uh, circle of friends of his, saying, now you yourselves used to be in the darkness. You used to be in the darkness, but since you have become the Lord's people, you are in the light. So you must live like people who belong to the light. And you and I are challenged when we sense the darkness encroaching maybe our minds or our hearts to live like people who belong to the light. We'll give a couple specifics in just a moment. Paul's cohort in ministry, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, not on the screen or in your notes, I believe, but he says this, you belong to God. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Why? For he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's that wonderful song by Charlie Hall, God calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And why? Because we belong to God. Darkness is around us, but we don't belong to the darkness. And there are habits that we want to begin to put on and live out to show other people the goodness of God. That's what we're called to do, to live like people who belong to the light. What are they in our text Verses 8 and 9. Since we belong to the day, he says, let us be sober. 
Let's think about this with clear minds. Let's not allow our emotions to overcome and flood us and paralyze us. And he gives us three habits here to put on. That's literally his language. He, he says, put on faith and love as a breastplate. Put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. He says, we need to protect ourselves. Students of what's called positive psychology in our time have come up with positive character qualities that they call strengths. And they say that these strengths function for us as like a, a booster shot to kind of immunize us against, if you will, in Paul's language, the darkness. The darkness encro encroaching in our hearts or in our minds. The first of these is faith. Write down faith. Paul says, put on faith. What is faith? Faith is simply relying on Jesus for our everyday life. Looking to Jesus. Walking with Jesus. Spending time in the presence of Jesus. In fact, we're going to try to exercise this as part of a, a, a something new for our church family. Starting next Sunday, I hope you come back. I, I hope you uh, check on your brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the Bethany family, or even neighbors, and invite them to be part. We're going to start 40 days of prayer. We, we've been in four months of this season of the virus crisis. We want to start 40 days of prayer, 40 days of, of faith in God, 40 days uh, in God's word, and to do that together, we'll be get, giving you more information coming up. So starting next Sunday, I think it's the uh, 26th, I'm excited about this, but we want to learn to live by faith. Sometimes we can feel that the circumstances of our life, the circumstances of the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, are, are such that we don't have much choice how we respond, how we react. We're all kind of stuck here in this situation. We're like those great theologians, uh, musicians of an earlier era who wrote that song, but here I am stuck in the middle with you. That's kind of us right now, sort of. We feel like we're kind of stuck. We can look back to the Old Testament. We look to the time of the Exodus. And we look at a season when God's people were promised to being brought out of darkness into light, out of death into life. Brought from Egypt to the promised land, and yet they had to wait. And they had to wander for 40 years. There was a lesson that God wanted to teach them. And it took 40 years. I've got a book this week that I've heard of for about 40 years. And I've never uh, read it. It's a Japanese theologian called Kosuke Kayama. And he grew up in Japan just before the horrible bombing and uh, firebombing of Tokyo, which destroyed, I believe, 80,000 people. And watching that deeply shaped his heart, his spirit, his soul. He became a follower of Jesus, was baptized, and he wrote a little book called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. And in it, he suggests that God moves sometimes slower than we think. And our job is to learn to keep in step with God. He suggests that the people of God, God wanted to teach them a very, very key and important lesson. And so he had them 
walk in the wilderness for three generations and to walk together to teach them to this reality that human beings do not live by bread alone, by physical sustenance, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he asked this question, how vital was this lesson for God's people? That God, the great teacher, would take 40 years to be sure that this lesson would sink into their hearts and their minds and their spirits and their souls. That's walking by faith. That's keeping company with Jesus every moment, every day. The second habit of the light, he shares his hope. He says it's hope. We, we can't give up hope. We may grieve, Paul says, when there's a death, when there's a loss, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We always hold on to hope. We're always looking around for signs of God's presence, for signs of God's engagement, for signs that God is with us. Pastor Brennan, as he kind of was opening uh, our time leading into our offering, encouraged us to think about the things that we can see God at work doing. Where do you see signs of God? One of the great ways to exercise hope, this may be, counterintuitive, but is to practice gratitude. To spend time, maybe every day, either at the beginning of a day or at the end of the day, or some people do both. But consciously kind of sit down and, and write down on a piece of paper, write down on a notepad, write down on a, a note in your, uh, in your uh, cell phone. Write down three things that you see God doing that you're grateful for. Could be something big, could be a simple act of kindness that someone showed you. What are you grateful for? When you begin to practice this, some of us are wired to look for things that go wrong. It doesn't take any great intelligence to find things that are going wrong. One of the great leadership books uh, of our time is uh, the leadership experts and gurus is uh, Ken Blanchard. And he wrote a little book called The One Minute Manager and his simple premise in that came down to a single sentence. Catch people doing something right. Now, any fool can catch somebody doing something wrong. It doesn't take much effort to do this. And there's so much wrong in our culture. In fact, this is a full-time enterprise for people right now in political circles. And it feels like people in the media catch someone doing something wrong. Very easy to do. And I grew up for whatever reason. Some of it was family background. Some of it was my biochemical makeup. Some of it is simply the flesh, the sin nature. Some of it was maybe the empty way of life handed down from my ancestors. But ultimately, it's something that is in my heart that it's easy for me to look around and see something that's not right. Something that needs to be fixed. Something that needs to be changed. When I was just starting up as a young follower of Jesus, not that young, I was in, I graduated college, I was actually become part of this church family, but just as an active parishioner, a congregational member, 
I was involved in some Christian education, but I, I had grown up and I had a, some good biblical training. I had a keen theological mind. And I was gifted, I thought, at looking for things that weren't right. And so I would share these things frequently with people around me. I'd had some theological training. In fact, one of my mentors just passed away this past week, uh, Professor J.I. Packer from Regent College in Vancouver, originally from Great Britain, and uh, studied with him at Regent College, actually was able to moderate at a panel featuring uh, him and Clark Pinnock and Tony Thistleton about the inerrancy of God's word. So it's a privilege to know some wonderful thinkers, but I had this tendency, I had this proclivity, I had this characteristic that I looked for things that were going wrong. I was in a small group with two other young dads, young husbands and young dads. And one day in the group, as I shared with them some of the things that weren't right, that I saw in the church, which happened to be this church, surprisingly enough, one of my brothers said, you know, I think we should have a new kind of a policy for our group that we can't bring up anything negative about the church unless we're willing to do something about that problem. Well, I found I didn't have a lot to say for three or four weeks because I was used to pointing out problems. I wasn't used to engaging my heart and my mind and myself, my body, in doing something about these problems. But you know, when you begin to look for things to be grateful for, it begins to, God breathes hope into our lungs in a new way. Because we have an expectancy that when we look for something to be grateful for, we'll find it. God in his goodness. The prophet Jeremiah is discouraged. He's demoralized. You read the book of Jeremiah, you'll understand why. And then if you want, go on and read the book of Lamentations, a very short book, but it's a, a book of weeping. It's a book of tears, a book of sadness. And he talks about things that had caused him to almost lose hope. He said, but this I call to mind, the Lord's loving kindnesses, his mercies, indeed, never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And from there, we get the beautiful hymn, the powerful hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. Look for God at work in your life or all around you. We can always find things that aren't going well. We've got an example of this in Scripture, not in your notes uh, or not on your screen either. In the book of Acts, we have Paul and Silas who are uh, at work in a city called Ephesus. We know we have a book uh, uh, written to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians. They were at work. They uh, set people free from the influence of evil. They taught people the word of God and the ways of God and the heart of God. People turned on him. And in the massive amphitheater that's still there in Ephesus, maybe some of you have been able to visit and stand in that amphitheater there in Ephesus. The people just went nuts. 
it says that the people joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. So the political leaders, the magistrates, ordered them to be stripped and to be beaten with rods. And after they had been, look at the language, severely flogged. Very few of us here in North America, and I hope there are people walking, watching who are from other countries though as well, but very few of us have been severely flogged because we've pointed people to Jesus. Then they were thrown into prison. They're out of the pot and into the fire. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, so he put them in the inner cell, sort of solitary confinement, if you will, in isolation, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So let's look at this again. You've got a, a, a riot that place around them in a country where they did not grow up and did not live. They were stripped, they were beaten with rods, severely flogged, thrown into prison, had their feet put in stocks, and oh yes, put into the inner cell where there was no hope of escape. How would you respond? How would I respond? Maybe we could think about our current circumstances where we feel like we are stuck in an inner cell at home and don't get out very much. I went to pick up something at Home Depot the other day uh, with my son Stephen, and I remarked, I said, it's, it's weird, I didn't realize that the, uh, the gravel pit uh, off of Irwindale at the 210 had been completely filled in. <laughs> I haven't been on the freeway. I haven't been on that freeway for four months. Been fairly isolated, fairly kind of stuck at home. And being stuck at home sort of does something to your mind. Here's people who are stuck in a cell, in prison, in stocks, having been stripped and beaten. And how do they respond? Here's what we read, verse 25 of Acts 16. About midnight, about midnight, in other words, when complete and utter darkness has descended for them, Paul and his co-worker Silas were praying. They weren't just praying. They were singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were stuck they had to listen to them. You see, you and I, when we're stuck at home, we have choices. It feels like people have taken our choices away. We always, always have choices. They were praying. They were singing hymns to God. They were testifying to God's goodness in the presence of other people, right? Other prisoners were listening to them. And you know what happened. We won't read the whole story, but verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And, all, and, and at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Maybe during this season where we feel locked down, stay at home, safer at home, and I don't fully mind it. Our kids have been great about encouraging us to stay at home and to be safer at home, uh, and yet uh, it was them who actually initially had the coronavirus. But I'm grateful for their engagement, for their involvement. I'm grateful that Sherry and I, who have a few more complications because of our age, not Sherry, sorry. I can't believe I even said that. Chad, can you edit that piece out entirely so I don't have to? 
yeah, he's, that's, that's, that's gone now. Uh, because of my age and because of complicating uh, pre-existing conditions, could be more vulnerable, you get more nervous, and yet this virus is no respecter of persons. It affects people of every age. The question is how are we going to respond when we feel stuck, when we feel isolated, when our circumstances have changed? They had about as bad of a circumstances as you could imagine, yet they're praying to God, they're singing hymns to God, they're conscious of God's presence, so they're speaking to him and they're praising his name, they're praising his character, they're praising who he is. And what happens, God who was there with them immediately changes their circumstances and they're set free, they're released, they're not stuck anymore. One day we will be set free, one day we'll be released, one day we'll be reunited with our brothers and sisters in Christ in a physical way. But right now our challenge is how do we sustain our fellowship emotionally, relationally, and spiritually while we're physically separated? They pray, they sing hymns to God, they're blessing the people around them and pointing them to God and then God comes, intervenes and sets everybody free. And you know the rest of the story is that the, the guard himself who was worried about losing his job because he's lost his prisoners. They explain the heart of Jesus to him and he and his entire household are saved. Is God capable of using a horrible pandemic? He didn't cause that, I don't believe. He's not the author of evil. But is God capable of using a horrible pandemic to turn people's hearts to him? He's done it before. In the Old Testament, the classic kind of story of this, although there's many, would be the story of Joseph. Young Joseph, so arrogant with that coat of many colors. I'm dad's favorite. Dad always liked you best, in the words of the great theologians, the Smothers brothers. Some of you are too young to, most of you, probably all of you, too young to remember them. But Joseph, thrown into prison in a foreign country, languishing away there, forgotten there, and yet over and over, several times in the story of Joseph, this little short little phrase is repeated. But the Lord was with Joseph. The three mile an hour God was with Joseph. And when Joseph is finally, after decades and decades, he's virtually incognito to his a family of origin, but when he is reunited with his family, he says this to the brothers who had thrown him into prison, left him for dead, allowed him to be sold into slavery into another country. He said, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. God can transform even a horrific situation, a horrible environment, a deadly pandemic. God can turn that and redeem that and transform that into something redemptive? What if, in fact, instead of us dreading the time that we're having to be safer at home and isolated, what if we began looking around for the opportunities that God might be extending to us during this season to walk with him through the darkness and to ask him to fill our hearts with hope? 
to ask him to help us to learn to live by faith because we don't live by what we see, Paul says. We live by faith, not by sight. Hope. Live a life of gratitude. Before you go to bed tonight, think of three things that you're grateful for and then do that again tomorrow and the next day and God will begin to give rebirth of your hope in your heart. A couple of other tools that were given in verses 8 and 9. Love. Love. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. That's that armor that goes on to protect our vulnerable region, especially our heart and our other internal organs. Love protects us. We need love. We need love. Not just That doesn't mean necessarily romantic love. That means Self-giving love, it means the love of God in Christ Jesus, who while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love to us because he died for us. Love. These are the habits of the light, faith and hope and love, but there's two more we're given as well. In the very final verse, verse 11, he says, therefore encourage one another, encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. <clears throat> this past week, we hadn't been able to see our grandkids for <clears throat> the past two weeks. That's a hard thing to do. Your kids, that's one thing, but your grandkids, it's another thing. And so we, we'd been uh, unable to see them, and once we kind of finally got clear, we were able to be with them uh, for Araya's seventh birthday. Can't believe it. What a wonderful gift from God she has been in all of our lives. But it's just so good to be together and to share that love. We, we need to think, God, can, how can we manifest love for our brothers and sisters in Christ right now during this season when we can't physically be in the same room sometimes with them? How can we do that? I believe that these th three things remain. Or I actually quoted this as one of her favorite verses when we were talking about her birthday. Verse in 1 Corinthians, and now remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These are habits of the light that we can live out even though we may have had the darkness encroach into our minds, our hearts, our spirit, even our physical circumstances. So how do we encourage one another? And the second phrase is this, encourage one another and build each other up. Build each other up. What can we do to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ at this time when we ne can't necessarily uh, be with them physically? Ask God to speak to you. And we're going to focus together as a church family starting next Sunday for 40 days. It'll take us through the opening of September. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we might be able to be back and worship together. What an incredible day of rejoicing that will be. But whatever happens, we're going to live with the habits of the light. Those are five habits. Faith, hope, love, encourage one another, build one another up. The last thing to say is very simply this. We said we're not immune to the darkness. It's all around us. Then we saw some good news. Number two, we don't belong to the darkness. So we're called to put on the habits of the light. And the third thing we see is this. We are not alone in the darkness. That's good news, isn't it? We are not alone in the darkness. 
The Lord is close at hand. Look at verses 10 through 11. We read that God wanted us to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he died for us. He died for us. For what purpose? He died for us to pay for our sin. He died in our place so we didn't have to carry the penalty of sin. He died, Peter says, to redeem us from the empty way of life that was handed down by our ancestors. And he died, Paul tells us. And I want to encourage you to underline these six words, if you would. He died for us so that we might live together with him. Jesus died so that you and I, through the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, that we might live together with him. Anytime we're alone in the darkness, we're not alone. I remind you of that passage of scripture in John, I believe it's John 14 or 16, where Jesus says, all of you will abandon me, all of you will leave me, you'll leave me utterly alone. And then he almost like corrects himself in mid-sentence. He says, yet I'm not alone because my Father is with me. Some of you are feeling very, very isolated and have been. And we're here four months into this season. Let me tell you, you are not alone. Your heavenly Father is with you. And you can live out the habits of the light. You can live out and begin to practice and cultivate these virtues of faith and hope, of love, of encouraging people, of building other people up. You can find ways to do that even in your difficult circumstance because the Lord is close to you. Earlier in the passage, I read Isaiah 9-1. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Isaiah goes on in uh, verses, uh, verse 2 and following. He says, the people walking in darkness. Now you're going to recognize this, I believe. The people walking in darkness. That's us during this season. Have seen a great light, an amazing, a majestic light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What's the basis on which the prophet can promise that this is going to happen? That comes a little bit later on in verse 6 where he says, For to us a child is born. The light has come into our world. The light has come into our lives. And this passage is quoted in Matthew 5, verses 14, 15, and 16, where it is applied to the coming of Jesus Christ to our world. And the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in that place of great darkness, a country occupied by a very powerful, a very malicious military power of Rome, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Why? Because to us, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Might of God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince who brings peace. And his government, his rule, his reign will change the darkness into light. We plan that, we expect that, we believe that, 
we hold on to that in faith. And our eyes are scanning the horizon, scanning our circumstances, scanning our relationships in hope, looking for that light. Can we pray? Then we're going to close with a, with a uh, closing song together. Living God, there's nothing wrong with our emotions. You gave us emotions. You gave us something to feel. Our lives matter, and life can be difficult. Jesus himself wept at a time of great loss for his dear close friends, Mary and Martha, their death of their brother, Lazarus. We can cry. But we remember even in our tears, when we feel so isolated, that the Bible says that the Lord is close to the broken in heart. And he binds up every wound. When you feel isolated, when you feel alone, remember you're not. Your Heavenly Father is with you. The heart-binding God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us, is with you. Yahweh Shema, the God who is present, is with you. Jesus, the one who said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. Look, I am with you always, even till the end of the age, even to the end of human history. I'm with you. I pray you would fill the room where my brothers and sisters are right now. Will your, will, that you will awaken our hearts and our eyes and our minds to recognize we're not alone. To realize that darkness may have encroached, but we are children of the light and children of the day. And you've given us habits of the light to put into practice. Teach us how to sh incur and share with other people our faith, our hope, how we can live in love practical, self-giving ways of serving other people, praying for other people. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to build up one another in love. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and all God's children said, amen.